Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, I'm pleased to have on a TV writer and producer who has worked on such shows as Necessary Roughness, Pan Am, and Miami Medical. He's the co-creator of the hit ABC series Lost and has also written features such as Tuck Everlasting and Tangled. Currently, he's the showrunner of NCIS New Orleans on CBS, currently prepping for their second season. Uh, Mr. Jeffrey Lieber, thanks for coming on today, Jeff. Really my pleasure. Thank you very much. And I should say that The uh, the Tangled I wrote is a very bad Richard Lee Cook movie from uh, the late... 90s, early noughts, not the uh, not the yeah, Disney, highly successful <laughs> Disney movie. So feel free to ignore that one if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, first off, we'd like to find out more about you. So I just wanted to start off to find out where and what did you study? I believe it was uh, University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and you studied theater. But uh, how did you be- first become interested in working in the entertainment industry? And how did you transition from studying theater to becoming a showrunner? <laughs> Uh, I would like to say it's more elevated than this, but my uh, my inter- interest in the entertainment industry came because I wanted to be near a very attractive blonde woman who I went to high school with. Nice. And uh, I saw her uh, in a stage play, and I thought, well, how the hell do I get into that? <laughs> uh, so that's what that started me down the road of being an actor. Um, uh, I never got very close to her, but I, it did it did start me down the road of being an actor. And I was an actor and a writer all through high school. Um, and then again, uh, there's a theme here. Uh, um, uh, I was planning on going out east and, and studying at uh, Vassar, one of those places. But my uh, uh, girlfriend at the time, not the blonde from before, uh, went to the University of Illinois, and there was a there's what's called the conservatory acting program there at the time, undergrad, which was very exclusive. Um, and I auditioned and got in, and so I just sort of kept following this very odd path, and. Um, you know, it was it was there. It was between sort of my senior year of high school and my years at the University of Illinois that I really became very passionate about acting and uh, theater and writing. And you know, I, I during my summers I worked at odd jobs and I would take the train and read, you know, Ibsen and and O'Neill and Chekhov on the on the on the on the train to and from work. And um, anyway, so that's that's where it all sort of started. Um, so you never actually studied writing. Person. No, wow. no, I never actually studied writing. I mean, I I was a I studied writers. Uh-huh. Um, I re, you know I I, I I read through the entire O'Neill canon one summer, Eugene O'Neill, and I and I read through Ibsen, and I you know I did sort of a classical personal training, but it was it was equal parts from being an actor and from being a writer, um, or or just developing. You know, writing really came out of that desire. You know, when you're an actor, somebody has to cast you, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody has to find a part for you. When you're a right, when you're a writer actor, you can say, "Well, I'm going to write one for myself." And so, it came out of that desire to have sort of have more control over my artistic process. And um, and the the big the big transition for me was so I, I moved to Chicago and I became an actor and I was fairly successful in the theater there. Um, and I got cast in a production of Awakened Sing at Steppenwolf, and I was standing on stage one day. Um, and Steppenwolf is always a place I'd wanted to work. I was standing on stage one day, and um, I was giving—I was playing Ralphie, and I was giving the—we got to get the workers down at the docks to organize speech. And I became just acutely aware of the fact that I was wearing makeup, and that the walls were about an inch and a half thick, and that there were 200 to 250 people staring at me, and all that sort of stuff. And I either had an epiphany or I had a mental breakdown, and I realized <laughs> that that part of my career had come to an end. Um, and within six months, I'd moved to L.A. Um, and uh, had really transitioned from being an actor to being a writer. Wow. 
Now, normally, I just have a bunch of questions that I rattle off and try to glean some brilliance uh, for our audience from our uh, experienced guests. But I like to try to do something a little different because honestly, you do such a great job of it yourself with the showrunner rules that I thought it would be fun to expand on some of those. Uh, sure. and, f- and for those of you listening who don't follow Jeff on Twitter, go do it uh, right now. I mean, it's at <laughs> Jeff Lieber. You can just hit pause on the podcast. We'll wait. You can come back when you've done it. Done? Good. Okay. So, because Jeff posts these really terrific bite-sized gems of of TV writer-producer advice. They're usually 140 characters, but once in a while he'll throw in a three-parter because you can't condense some stuff down that far. It gets hard, yes. Right? They're all great. But since they're only 140 characters, I wanted to see if we can get you to elaborate on some of the ones that I thought would be most relevant and helpful to our audience. Cool. So the first one relates to to hiring. It's Mm -hmm. showrunner rule number three, where you say, I'll take a great person over a great writer any day. I can fix writing, but I can't get back time and asshole wastes. And we've spoken a number of showrunners and TV writer producers who have said something similar. What are some of the characteristics that make somebody a great person in your eyes? And regarding the fixing of the writing part, have you ever hired writers you thought were pretty good, but certainly not great? And because they were really great people or brought something else to the table, perhaps a life or work experience or something, you hired them anyway. Yeah, I don't know that I've hired somebody who I didn't think was great. I think I've hired people who I thought were great, realized "Mm, they're not as great as I thought they were, but then found a quality in them that made it worth it. Um, There was a writer I had on one show who I liked their sample and I hired him and then when I got them in the room, I, I sort of realized that, that what was on the page was not their strong point. But what was their strong point was the ability to generate endless ideas. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so much of writing for television is about being able to fill the story engine, you know, keep the story engine going. And so I knew that that person was, I could go in the room and say, I'm stuck here, and that person would pitch me 10 ideas. And w- one of those 10 ideas was always like, ah, there it is, thank you. And I knew that, you know, if, they, if it was a 22-episode order, they were going to write two scripts, and I was going to have to do a ton of work to get it into the, into the voice that I thought the show would be. But, you know, for the other 20 scripts that they contributed ideas, it was well worth the fact that uh, um, I was not going to get, you know, Shakespeare from them. As for qualities for, for a good person, I, I think, um, you know, there's sort of three of them, which is collaborative, sane, and calm. Um, <laughs> because, because what... What tends, you know, the, the job of a showrunner tends to be a 70 to 80 hour a week uh, endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when things are going pretty smoothly. And, you know, what takes up time is politics and infighting and, and having to say, hey, will you do this? And then explain and then re-explain and so on and so forth. So it really is the ability for people to be calm and understand that a lot of television is written in the last five seconds and to be sane, which is that they take whatever personal demons they have, they try to keep outside the office. Um, and collaborative is the other one, you know, just the ability to listen to notes from me, from other people, to be willing to be like, oh, you need an act written? I'll write an act. Great. Fantastic. Um, and those are the really qualities. You know, if I've got somebody who's collaborative, sane, and calm, mm-hmm. and a just a bu- above average writer, you know, mm-hmm. that to me is a big win. Right. You know, there's another rule, maybe I'll quote it, you know, which is that you don't need 12 writers who all do the same thing. If I have 12 writers who could write drafts, right? Mm-hmm. Then, but no one who can come up with ideas, and no one who can keep a schedule in their head, and no one who can, can, can go into editing when I can't, then 
it's great. I'll have a bunch of fantastic drafts, and then I will spend the rest of my time trying to keep up with the process. So you sort of need uh, there's a set of rules, which is all about sort of how you break down a rule. And and you know you need three great writers on a staff of eight. You need three great writers, and then another five people who who can fill in gaps, who can write, but also can fill in other gaps. Mm-hmm. And that leads to the next rule. We're going to be jumping around here. That's fine. That uh, showrunner rule 194, which is one of those fun three-parters, uh, mm-hmm. that talks about your ideal staff. An ideal staff, you write, equals three people who can write the crap out of the show, one person great at covering set, one person who can warm up cuts, one person who keeps uh, the room on task, and one person who just makes you laugh. Everyone else is just gravy. Obviously, writing ability does play into it, and you have to be a good writer. Otherwise, you really are going to drag everything else down, and you yeah. don't provide usefulness. But there's other skills that really need to be present in various quantities on a staff to sort of help the showrunner, which is really your job as 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 a writer-producer on a show, is to help the showrunner make a show. So but, um, can you go into detail into you know, sort of what those different... I don't want to say roles, but sort of those different skill sets are that you, you like to see on a staff. You need about you and three other people who can, who can just write the show, right? Who you can right. just say, hey, I, 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 the act two doesn't make any sense. Can you go fix it, right? Mm-hmm. And then the it and they do that. You need somebody who understands editing so that while you are busy breaking an episode or getting notes or somebody else, they can walk into the edit room, understand how to you know, interact with, a, with an editor, know how to talk to an editor and talk in editing, you know, um, and, and take the cut, the cut that comes in nine minutes long and take five of those <laughs> minutes out, right? Right. So, and then you walk in and go, okay, great. Okay, now I've got a four-minute overcut, and I, I can make that happen in a, in a day. So mm-hmm. that's a good person to have. Um, somebody who can who is, just has massive people skills and can, when you are, again, now you're in editing, right, and you need, to, you need to push a story forward, you've got, you know, ideally the second or third in command who can get everyone in the room and say, okay, here's what we've got to break. And he's able to listen to people and move people around and understand when people are frustrated and understand when the writer who's up on, uh, on task is, you know, uh, um, stuck and just has those, those kind of people skills. Um, it's useful to have one writer, especially if you're in the same city as your show, who the cast really likes and gets, and who understands how to deal with the actors, so that if something happens on set and you can't be there for whatever reason, you can say, hey, go down to set, figure out what's going on, see what needs to be written or not, calm everybody down and all that sort of stuff. I also just need somebody who I can go in their office and close the door and say, you know, talk about the, the fact that the Cubs are still should be better by now, you know, right. um, whatever, whatever that is for me, or, 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 or I can talk about my kids or whatever, and, and just take me down and out for a few minutes, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you spend a lot of time with these people, and um, so those are the ones I talked about, but I mean, you know, every, every showrunner will tell you a different set of things, I just know that writing the show is only one very small piece of the process, and um, you, you, you just need you just need a lot of voices who do a lot of tricks. Right. No, that's great. Um, and and the edge one thing, which is a lot of shows, especially as we, as this, as the television landscape gets more and more bifurcated and there are more and more voice pieces on tiny networks, right? Those, the voice of the show often is controlled a lot by the showrunner, right? So mm-hmm. what you're asking your writers to do is get you close. And then you add the, you add the sort of the soul of the final voice. So again, the writing process is something that, in some ways, you have to be uh, be the end, the the final 
you know, the spigot to turn it on. And so you really do need people who can do other things. When, once you get that script and say, okay, I need four hours in my office to do this, you guys keep the ball moving forward. Right. No, absolutely. And speaking of that, here's another important one, especially relevant to, I think, our audience, is Showrunner Rule 106. And that's being a great staff writer is equal parts invention and mimic. Invention of story, but mimic of the creator's voice and style. And lots of reps, execs, writers, all talk about finding a writer who has a distinct voice. And yet, as you mentioned, mimicry is an important skill set for staff writers for obvious reasons. You don't want random episodes to have different voices because that just would be terrible. How does an aspiring staff writer show or express that to you, to a showrunner? Obviously, you've met them probably based on an original pilot. Do you request another piece of material, perhaps a spec episode? Or is it something that you just trust your instinct after talking to them that you feel that they would be able to do that? You know, it's mostly about the personal voice of a writer mm-hmm. is about coming in to any show and adding ideas and adding concepts and so on and so forth. And, and then, you know, be able to create new characters who show up and do things. Oh, my God, that's cool. But it's still within the box that is, that is your show, right? The mimicry part is to understand that there are set conventions within, within any show, even the most uh, serialized show, right, which you have to understand and be able to mimic uh, what's already on the page. So in this show, we tend to pull a lot of articles. So instead of saying, uh, the bus is here, the library bus is here, right, because it just feels more like these people who are talking. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be able to pick that up and go, ah, interesting, we, we're pulling those articles there. These people talk in a more stilted style or or um, some shows have very elaborate action lines that, rec- that, that explain in detail what's going on. Some shows, uh, you know, Law and Order scripts will say, they stand on the stoop, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. nothing else about what's going on is ever elucidated there. And you, again, you, you, do, you as a staff writer have to know to go into that show and not write huge, long action lines that explain. He stands on the show with his, shoe, with his shoes untied, he ties his shoe, he does, you know, that the showrunner's going to come and say, this is not the show. Just right. tell me where he is, and we'll move on. So that's the mimicry part, which is, which is the, the voice is about being able to bring ideas and concepts. The mimicry part is about understanding, understanding the show you're on and the, right, the showrunner you're working for and being able to give them what they need. Right. And speaking of, of dialogue, there are a few of the showrunner rules that touch on that subject. Uh, showrunner rule 2 uh, states, black out the character names on a script. If after you can't immediately identify your character's voices, you fucked up. Uh, 108 says, not every character speaks English or in full sentences or has good grammar. Uh, Not every character speaks like you. And 179 says, every so often, go to the mall and listen to people talk. Ability to create real dialogue separates prose from pikers. I want to see if you could expand on this a little. For some of our newer writers especially, what makes dialogue feel real and what makes great dialogue great? What makes it stand out? To me, it's, it's, again, understanding the difference between... It, you know, again, it's all about genre as well. I mean, certain genres, again, have more gack to them that require you to do things that people don't actually do, right? Which is explain things, explain things to characters who should know better. You walk into a room, everybody there's a cop, right? And you say, blah, 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 which everybody should know, but the audience, you know, the audience needs to. That's a tough little trick. But the real game is, is, is to look at every script you write and to to make sure that it is that there are varied tempos and varied voices and that you're creating with as much sense of creativity as possible so that people who have different dialects, have different speeds, have different, you know, um, come into contact with each other and then 
you know, I feel like one of the things I do fairly well is dialogue, and partially it's because I was an actor at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I can read it back to myself and see if it's going to sound like a person. And I think a lot of young writers tend to write a bunch of people who come from the same basic humanity set. And so everybody has the same set of vocal inflections and and vocal quirks and you know it's when you it's when you get the character who speaks in long verbose poetic sentences in the same scene with the person who can who can barely get a three sentence uh, three word sentence out that you now have some sort of both oral uh, sort of tension and you feel like okay I, I'm bringing to the script the most original people I can. Mm-hmm. Now, this is another one that I thought was great, is number 30. Never chase a trend because a bigger writer will get there first, and yesterday's vampires are tomorrow's stodgy British family. Can, can you elaborate on that? Why shouldn't someone write a show about you know zombies in Wonderland or whatever? You can write that show. Mm-hmm. And you can write that show if that show is a show you want to write and you love. And you'd write anyway. Right. What gets people in trouble is when they're like, okay, zombie shows are hot. I'll write a zombie show. Mm-hmm. Right? That's when, that's when it kind of falls apart is because when you wake up one morning and you decide to write a show because you believe it will sell. Your, zomb- your new newbie zombie show is definitely behind the 10 others that are being written by the people that the network trusts to write zombie shows. So you, you just have to, you know, again, if you're the kind of person who writes zombie shows and that's what you love and you're passionate about and all that sort of stuff, then that's what you got to write, right? Mm-hmm. But, you, but, but don't go into it trying to figure out what's on TV and then, and then mimic that because it, it never works. Right. And oftentimes your great original pilot doesn't sell, but it's a great writing sample, so it's much better to have something that you're passionate in that... Yeah. A hundred percent. Again, there's uh, one rule, and you may quote it, which is about there are basically three ways, two ways into the industry, mm-hmm. right? Well, there's three ways. There's nepotism. We'll put that aside because you can't help that one. Right. The, sec- the second is that you find a mentor. You find someone who is willing to pull you in, have you be their assistant, have you be their whatever, and then eventually say, hey, you write this, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how you know most of the people in my world have come into me. The other is that you succeed in in some other discipline, right? You are a prize-winning um, uh, graphic novelist. You are a fighter pilot who did 300 missions over the this. You are, you are um, uh, a guy who went to prison for bank fraud. And, and, and through those set of experiences, you know, the, there, I can't tell you how many times I've been pitched somebody who says, hey, he's this guy, he or she is this person who did this and wrote about this and has this amazing short story about the 16 months they spent in a prison in Laos, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go and read this short story and it's their life experience and you're like, that's a person who's got a voice that can bring in it. And, 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 you know, so those are really the only two ways in, which is that somebody, you, you find a mentor who pulls you up the system or that you take your life experience, whatever it is, and you put it in your art. Right. So right now, some of our listeners are trying to decide whether or not it's the time more cost effective or time effective to become a uh, bank fraud, you know, commit the massive bank fraud, or to actually find a mentor and write a bunch of drafts of, of their original spec and, and get in that way. I think I think that is a legitimate <laughs> question to ask. Let me just say, I uh, let me just uh, buffer this by saying, unless it's or, it's already happened to you, I would choose not to go down the dark road unless you have to. <laughs> I only mean that at the point at the point that anyone is listening to this, they have to just say to themselves, "What do I do? Where is my where is my story that I can tell 
that that will cause you know because uh, you know I get calls from agents all the time, which is they're a great writer. Will you read them? Right? Mm-hmm. And I'll say yeah when I get time. Right? But a, a writer with a story, a writer with a narrative, you know, a writer with a it, it, this person, you know, put themselves through college by you know juggling fire on the quad and and you know has become you know is now in Vegas. To, you know that. As a story, as a narrative, is is what sort of tends right now to to have people go, oh, oh I'd love to meet that person. Right now, here's one that I thought was really interesting: the showrunner rule 109, where you said it's easy to make the first and last five minutes compelling. When plotting pilot, find a moment at 2312 that takes your breath away. I'm sure 2312 being an arbitrary number, but I get yes. your point. Utterly uh, right. Yeah. Right. So when plotting a pilot, find a, a, a moment somewhere other than the first fi- or last five minutes and make it compelling. Can you elaborate on that? And, and how do newer writers find that moment? I think, I think that, is a, that is all code for don't settle for a story on rails, meaning... You know, when you were a kid and you went to, or maybe didn't, when you went to an amusement park and there were those, you could drive a car and you're driving the car and then, you, and then you know, you're, you're like, this is the greatest thing ever because I'm on, I'm on this ride, the car, and then you realize that between the set of wheels is a rail. So you can only go about two feet to the left and two feet to the right, right? And you realize, oh, you know, I'm not really driving a car, which is why my parents are, you know, sitting there. So when a story gets a rails whereby you start with something really interesting and you end with something really interesting, but everything else in the middle... It's just that very straightforward track that takes you there, right? Mm-hmm. People will read the first five minutes, they'll be like, great, fantastic. And then they'll get into a rut. And they'll be like, oh, okay, this scene follows that scene, follows this scene, follows that scene. And unless there's at least one or two ideas along the way that are, that are oh my God, that's cool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can get into a, you can never get them to that really cool end where they go, oh my God, that's fantastic. You know, I, I think of the Mad Men pilot, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, uh, starts out all, with all this very interesting stuff. And then, I, to me, the moment when um, his assistant from, from the early season... The Elizabeth Moss character, but... Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. When she reaches out and takes his hand, uh, Don Draper's hand, in a, in a, a gesture that says, ah, I'll fuck you if I have to to stay here. And then he says to her, we don't do that here is that moment in the middle that sort of you didn't expect and you didn't quite understand and puts in place all sorts of interesting things and allows you to get to the moment later with, where her character sleeps with Pete and everything else. But that's the moment in the middle that is that interesting sort of juicy moment that isn't just the beginning of the story, which is him and trying to sell cigarettes, and the end of the story, which is, oh, my God, he's got another family, right? But it's those pieces in, in between. Right. And one of your other rules, showroom rule 114, says if you can remove a scene from a board and story doesn't implode, then the scene isn't primal. Run tests before going to outline. How does a writer determine whether it's one of those great moments versus something that you can just yank out that's extraneous? Well, I mean, I, I think the same basic reason, which is, which is that that scene, yes, you could pull that scene out, right? That scene doesn't have any plot value to mm-hmm. it. But it does explain the later, it does help give um, momentum and character uh, logic to why she's, her willingness to sleep with Pete, who she despises, and so on and so forth a couple pages later, which is that she's really a woman in, in this time period trying to find herself who is utterly lost, right? And, and is defined right now by, this, by what she mostly wants, which is to, to be in this world, right? In her own way, but doesn't know how to get in. I think it's, you know, 
to that, I would say this scene has a character value that if you pull it out, will cause the scene to explode. It's, it's those scenes that are like, they walk along, they discuss this, uh, we learn that, right? And you think mm-hmm. to yourself, well, couldn't that go in the scene before and the scene after? Why are we creating a big walk and talk here in the middle of nowhere just to get this piece of information out? So I, I think that rule applies to sort of the informational path of the script. Right. Got a couple more here. Uh, 133 says the goal of pilot is to establish concept and possibility. The first 10 pages elucidates how the show works. The last 10 where the show will go. When a writer's writing a pilot, an original pilot, maybe you can describe a little bit about the needs of those first and last 10 pages and how they can show the show integral workings, the basis of it in terms of where the show will go, how you can sort of incorporate that while still telling your story of your pilot. You know, I think as an example, and this is a long time ago, so I'm trying to remember it right. But, yeah. you know, I remember the Game of Thrones pilot mm-hmm. started out with winter is coming, right? right. And, and then you learn very quickly about sort of kingdoms and rivalries and all that sort of stuff. And so the, the, um, the way that show functions, you understood, ah, this is a show about kings and queens and, and, and uh, lands and rivalries and all that sort of stuff, right? And so that became the thing that, that after about 10 to 15 minutes of that show, you came to understand that this was the, how the world worked. You know, the end of that pilot was the, killing, was the realization that the Lannisters were sleeping together, the brother and sister, right. and then right. the killing of that kid. And so <laughs> you shut the TV off at the end and you go, oh, my God. Well, so now is somebody going to find out that they killed the kid? Does it matter? Are they sleeping together? How does this work? Who knows? You know, mm-hmm. and on and on and on. And so you leave the, you know, the the last five minutes of, of, of a pilot, a great pilot, causes you to go, wait, how is this? How is this person going to do that? What is this person going to do that? Not, you know, how, you know, what the fuck happens next week? So that's really what that's about, which is that you want to establish in the first 10 pages of a pilot, what is this thing? What am I looking at? Is it a procedural? Is it a cop procedural? Is it a, is it a soap? Is it a, uh, is it a, um, one of those shows where we uh, where we are long and languid, and we're, we we sit for you know like um, Friday Night Lights, where we're shooting from way out, and you're you know looking at a vista and a man throwing a football, you know back and forth, back and forth. Or is it a show like Law and Order, where you get in as late as possible and you get out as early as possible, and you're there, you know literally you get the facts and you move on. And so if you learn the the rule structure of how the show works in the first ten pages, that's great. <laughs> and then the last 10 pages have to set up something that comes off in the future. Right. Now, this is one that I thought was hysterical, which really, I'm not sure is, is wholly relevant to everybody, but it's funny. Uh, it was 174, and that's a two-parter. Every so often, when giving a script to staff for input, add insane action. For example, Bill vomits gnats, just as he was really reading, although I guess the current example says, won't seem insane on American Horror Story. Did you ever really do this? And if so, what was the result? I don't know that I ever do this. I know that people have done it to me. <laughs> the staff has done it to me when, when I'm in a you know, sort of crazy mode in my head somewhere else, and they'll hand me a script, and I will read it in my own way, which is I'll skip over, I'll skip over action lines. I'll just try to get to the things that I think are really important at the moment. Right, right. And then somebody will say to me, you didn't really read it, did you? And I say, I did, I did. And they said, well, well, you know, you didn't mention the part where I, and they've caught me. And I, and I thought it's a good trick if ever you feel like, what you're getting back from your staff is not the the level of 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 specificity. So really, that's a, that's a that's a bust on me. Um, nice. And people have, have done that to me. Nice. 
This one I, I just wanted to touch on, and it really doesn't need any sort of explanation. It's number 125. Lead character names must start with different letters using smart type. <laughs> this saves 22.5634 hours over the life of a series. Yeah, that's obviously super important. So makes Yeah, and then, of course, you know, any any real writer will say, you know, lead characters have names, and the lead characters have names, and you should type it out. But I do, I just do know, that, let me put it this way, when you're running a... a a show where you're a network show where you're doing 22 to 24 a year and you know it does help to, to not have to be like get three letters into a character before the computer knows what you're trying to do right now we could go on and on with your showrunner rules because there's so many great ones but i want to ask you a few other questions before we go one of them as a showrunner uh, when you're meeting staff writers when you're doing staffing meetings and you'd mentioned some of the great qualities that you look for what are type of things that are turnoffs during staffing interviews what are some things that you see you have seen in uh potential uh staff writers or whoever and gone hmm that's there's a red flag right there trashing your last showrunner is uh, not a useful trick uh you know just because what it tends to say is you know i don't intend to think that everybody's a good person and, and there are lots of showrunners who are assholes so it's not it's not as if i'm suggesting that you know but it does it does sort of speak to when you come out of an experience that you that you don't like the best thing to do is to say i made my best of it and here's why i'm great um and not to spend your time looking back um um, I think people who who tip you to their political nature, who seem to be trying to figure out who you know, I, I don't like it when I'm in a meeting and there's me and maybe a you know a couple members of my staff and and some writer will will make a point of directing everything at me because they're like, oh, that's the person I have to impress because I feel like well. I'm never going to get a straight answer out of this person because they're always trying to figure out how to play me and to make me happy in a in a sort of a, a weird way. Right. Um, you know, I think you you want to be eager without being too eager. I think mm-hmm. too eager can get to a place where you know I, the the best things that I've had are people who say I love the show, I want to be on the show, and whatever you need to do, let me know. Um, that kind of call makes me think like. They're they are confident in themselves. They're confident in their ability to get a job, and they want to speak for the right reasons, not because oh my god, you know I gotta make I gotta make rent. And that may be the case. You you may need to make rent, but I think to to, to project the concept that you know you'll get there. It's just a matter of when and where. Right now, specifically NCIS, you've obviously worked on a lot of stuff, but regarding NCIS New Orleans, mm-hmm. coming in as a showrunner of sort of an established franchise like NCIS. But taking it and starting, not coming into a show that's basically set up, but creating a new series of the franchise, what was that like for you? How were you able to sort of stay within those the, the NCIS yeah, franchise, yeah. but kind of do your own thing? I, it's it's tricky. I mean, look, I get a I get a lot of um, I get a lot of support from the mothership and mm-hmm. from Gary Glassberg, who cre- who actually created the show and who I you know the executive producers with me. So I get a lot of I get a lot of sort of. Uh, um, you know, I, I say that he he stands a, a thousand feet away and looks at the, the overview of the entire uh, uh, empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a that's a, a big help. But you know, it, it's a it's an interesting challenge, and um, it's part of the reason I thought that the job might be interesting to me was was both the ability to take to drive this very well oiled machine, um, and also the ability to try to find a way to differentiate it on a week to week basis from the other two pieces and to live in the same concentric universe as the other two shows, you know, we're, you know, and to, you know, it, 
I think the biggest, not frustration, but the biggest, you know, reality is that there are almost 300 episodes of the, of the original show and there's probably a hundred and something episodes of the, of LA. And then there's 40 years of cop shows and, you know, the concept of, okay, let's think of something that hasn't been done before is, um, is a daunting challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, coming from necessary roughness, which obviously is a cable series versus a network series, what sort of, considerations are there in terms of the narrative commercial breaks and things like that subject matter every tv show is essentially a box full of toys right Mm -hmm. um you are handed a box well of a different size and and you're handed a set of toys of different levels of complexity and then you know it's like a thought experiment which is what can i make out out of using this box and these toys and the box is how long it is, is it a half hour, an hour. The box is what's the budget. The box is how many commercial breaks are there. The box is, is a procedural, you know. So those, those are some rules you have to follow. The toys are the particular actors you have, the particular, uh, the, your time period, all those sorts of things, uh, you, the subject matter, the, um, the storytelling technique. Um, and so, you know, to me, you judge a great showrunner not by whether or not you love their show. You mm-hmm. judge a great showrunner by that, by the question is are they getting the most out of the box and toys they've been given? Because it's not fair to hold the showrunner of an ABC Family show to the same rules as an HBO show, right? And say, right. well, the HBO show is so much deeper and da, 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 you know, well, they've got five times the budget and they've got. Uh, five times the shooting schedule, and they've got, and they're being asked to do a certain set of things. And so I think it's a, it's, you know, I think it's tempting from an audience standpoint to just say, well, the final product is the judge of who, of who the writer is. And I think it's tempting from a writer standpoint to say, well, why can't everything be Game of Thrones or whatever, whatever your favorite show is, right? Right, right. And the answer to that is because of the box that you start with is just different. And so the question is, can you make the best? the best, most interesting, most, most artistic, most entertaining thing given, given the box of the toys. Right. Even in feature world, you can't blame necessarily the failure of a, of a film solely on the, the head of the, the writer. So many drafts come into it and director and yeah. producers all have input and all these other types of things. So no, that's, that's great to, to consider, obviously, keep right. in mind. Now we have a part where uh, we just like to ask you some rapid-fire questions <laughs> that I think you might find fun. Um, who do you think would win in a winner-take-all game of Jenga? Legendary guitarist Jeff Beck, uh, four-time Winston Cup Series champion driver Jeff Gordon, Amazon founder and 15th richest person on the planet Jeff Bezos, or yourself? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I'm going to go with Jeff Beck. <laughs> okay. Uh, just, uh, but, but it's a really, it's a, it's, that's a, it wouldn't be me. Okay. I get distracted. I, I, I get distracted, and I and it's likely that I would stand up and go get a drink and knock the whole thing over. Right. Was well, so Jeff Beck with his you know guitar skills? Maybe his fingers are adept. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a good answer. Which fellow University of Illinois alum would make for the most interesting subject for a TV bio series, and what should it be called? Playboy founder Hugh Hefner, Oracle founder and the fifth richest person on the planet, Larry Ellison, or Ed Boon, the creator of the hugely popular Mortal Kombat video game series. Can I go off? Sure. Off the realm. I'm going to go with Brokeback Mountain director Ang Lee. Oh, cool. Who, I mean, who went to University of Illinois and uh, and um, was in the program that I was in many years before me. So I'm going to say Brokeback uh, Ang Lee. Excellent. 
which cast member or former cast member would be the most fun to party with on Mardi Gras and why? Got Bacala, who's obviously on your current series, yep. uh, Callie Thorne from Necessary Roughness, or uh, Jeremy Northam from Miami Medical. <laughs> I think, uh, uh, all due respect to, to Bacula, who I love and think is fantastic. I think the answer is the answer is definitely Callie Thorne. Um, she uh, of the three of them is the the most likely to go off and do something insanely nuts that you'll have to either get her uh, uh, bail for at the end of the night, or um, you'll need a couple of, uh, you know like Advil in the morning. Nice. Garrett's popcorn, the Chicago mix, or beignets from Cafe Du Monde. Uh, anything from Chicago. It's nice. where my soul is. From. Nice. More important, a World Series for the Cubs, Super Bowl for the Bears, a uh, championship for the Bulls, or Stanley Cup for the Blackhawks? There's only one answer for that. <laughs> I After figured. 100 and, what, nine years in it yeah. now? 107 years? It's, it's the Chicago Cubs by a, by a long shot. Yeah, well, you're getting close, I think. I mean, I think you guys... Uh, no, I, look, the, 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 the great moment, the, the great darkness of my life is that I was at the Bartman game. I was at oh. the game where Bartman put his hands out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've been as close to the sun as I care to be. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, and finally, reading, watching, playing, and listening. Are you what are you reading, watching, playing, and listening to? Um, I'm reading nothing other than material for the show. That's sure. the sad truth. What am I watching? I've been watching um, uh, Halt and Catch Fire, which I've liked yeah. uh, an endless amount. What am I listening to? Um, I'm listening to my wife is a musician. Um, her name is Holly Long, and she just put out a project through a band called Bully Heart. Uh, so I'm listening to that album. Uh, reading, watching, listening. What was the fourth one? Uh, playing. Are you playing any games? Uh, I am playing basketball, but after the grind of last season, uh, I'm playing it very slowly and um, not incredibly well. Um, and um, <laughs> a friend of mine put a, put a missed layup on, up on Facebook, and I haven't recovered. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so oh, goodness. I should say a former friend. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and lastly, do you have any advice for aspiring TV writers, or is there anything else you'd like to share? It's always the same thing, which is which is get yourself enough money to have a little breathing room, come to the city you want to be in, mm-hmm. um, get a job which covers your nut just barely, but doesn't make you completely crazy, and then write and be incredibly nice to people. That's the way to do it. I mean, the truth of the matter is everybody I've ever known who has talent and is stuck with it has made it. It's a really tough scary thing but it also works out well and so i mean you just gotta you gotta have stamina and you gotta be willing to um to meet a lot of people because that's really what it's about the other one last piece of advice uh, um, is that if you're a young actor i'd say before coming to la or new york consider going to one of these satellite cities where there's where there's a tax break and there's a lot of work i mean new orleans has got five tv shows and seven movies going at any time the same thing with atlanta there's a couple more other ones and and that's the place where you can get where you can get a little head of steam under you before you come to one of the big cities. Good advice. Thanks for coming on the show, Jeff. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, and be sure to follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Lieber. We'll have all the links and stuff on our site in case you I don't know can't seem to work Twitter and find Jeff Lieber. Um, so be sure to do that because his stuff is really really great. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scripts and scribes or send us a tweet to at scripts scribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scripts scribes. Thanks for listening.